The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's take our Bibles now and uh, turn to Paul's first epistle to Timothy, chapter 1. <clears throat> and I'll read again today uh, verses 3 through 7, if you follow with me as I read. Paul writes to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us now as we seek to understand it and to uh, grasp its relevance, its, its practicality to us, in our own day, in our own time. So we cry to you for help, the help of your spirit. We thank you that you've promised to give him to those who ask. And so we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, when I was in seminary, way, way back, long, long, long time ago, uh, leading into my final year or so of study, there was a family in my church who invited me to live in their home. Uh, it was a wonderful Christian home, a large family. Uh, one of their sons uh, was in the college and career uh, group that I taught in the church, and they had a large home and plenty of space, so they invited me to live there for free until I finished up my degree. In fact, I, I was living there when Kelly and I met. That's where we courted one another there in the context of that, that place, that home. Uh, the father was a veterinarian. In Fort Worth, he seemed to be a very godly man. He was a very zealous, enthusiastic Christian. And we had wonderful times of fellowship. And Kelly and I loved him and the family very much. But not long after we got married and moved to South Carolina, a number of very strange things happened. He had a twin brother who claimed to have been saved out of some weird Eastern religion or out of a kind of occultic background and this brother moved his family away, way up into the mountains of New Mexico uh, to live off the land and to keep so-called separated from the world. And he promoted strange doctrines and weird ideas and extreme charismatic teaching that I won't get into the details of this morning. Well, after we moved to South Carolina, we found out that our friend, the dad of the family that I lived with, had gone to visit his brother in New Mexico. Well, while he was there, I guess uh, just to kind of summarize it, he came under his brother's spell, as it were. He made another trip and later and gradually he began to change his views and his beliefs. And to make a long story short, he eventually left his wife and his wonderful family and he moved up into the mountains with his brother. And later he became something of a homeless vagabond 
traveling about here and there as some kind of self-professed prophet or preacher until he eventually died a few years later of hepatitis. It was shocking for us, to say the least. And there have been other experiences like this, perhaps not so dramatic, in which men and women we have known who at one time appeared to be faithful Christians have fallen away from the faith. Some of you here this morning have been Christians long enough that perhaps you can remember conversations like this. A shocked friend asks you, have you heard about Sally? She's left the church and says she's no longer a Christian. Or have you heard about Billy? He says he changed his mind about the Bible. He no longer believes that it's the infallible word of God. Or he no longer believes that Christ is the only way to heaven. A way, perhaps, but not the only way. And what was most disconcerting about this is that this person you knew used to be, or at one time seemed to be, one of the most zealous Christians in the church. He used to be one of the leaders, perhaps, of the youth ministry. Or she used to lead the devotions in the ladies' meetings. Or perhaps he used to be your pastor. Or someone God had actually used to bring you to Christ. But now they have turned away from the faith. And all kinds of questions come to your mind. Were they ever truly saved to begin with? Well, time will tell. If they continue in that way and never repent, they they never were, but the verdict is still out. But I just want to say to you, this is nothing new. We have examples of this in the Bible. Judas, Demas, one of Paul's trusted missionary companions, but sadly, Paul says of him later in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. It's what we sometimes refer to, and the Bible sometimes describes by the word apostasy, apostasy. Turning away from the faith that a person once professed to believe. But not only does this happen to individuals, it happens to churches. Sean Lucas, in an article entitled Lessons from Church History, he tells about what he discovered while he was doing research on the history of a particular church. Now, this brother is a, a Presbyterian, so all the examples that he gives are Presbyterian, church, are Presbyterian churches, so I'm not picking on Presbyterians. The same thing can be said of many Baptist churches that were once faithfully, uh, faithful, doctrinally sound, healthy congregations. But he writes this, for example, he says, I tried to find information about Point Breeze Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, where Harold Okinga ministered. Some of you may have heard of him. Central Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga, where Wilbur Cusar pastored. United Presbyterian Church in Wheeling, West Virginia, where John Reed Miller served for a time. And Central Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, where R.E. Howe pastored. What do these congregations have in common? They were all thriving, large, significant churches pastored by conservative, talented men, and they no longer exist today. As late as the 1950s, they were all thriving congregations, but no longer. And the lesson he draws from this is it only takes one generation for a church to die. 
And I would add, or if not die and close its doors, it only takes one generation for a church to become largely apostate and to no longer be faithful to the gospel. Well, in the passage we return to this morning, in our study of 1 Timothy, Paul is addressing the problem, I remind you, of false teachers in the church at Ephesus. To bring us up to speed and to dive back into this passage, let me just briefly review what we considered last week from verses 3 to 5. Paul is in Macedonia, and he's left Timothy behind to instruct God's people and to set things in order in the church. And the first thing that Paul addresses in this letter is this problem of false teachers. False teachers had arisen in the church at Ephesus. And we saw last week that there are indications in the letter that these false teachers may have actually been in the eldership of the church. And they were teaching what Paul calls, at the end of verse 3, other doctrines. Doctrine other than sound doctrine, other than sound gospel apostolic teaching, novelties, new teachings, threatening to draw people away from the truth of the gospel. And exactly what were these men teaching? Well, we aren't given a lot of details, but we are given some very interesting clues. Paul says in verse 4, charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, fables or myths, myths and endless genealogies which cause disputes, or it can be translated, which promote speculations. And later in this same epistle, chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, Paul describes these false teachers as obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicious, su- suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And he speaks in verse 20 of chapter 6 of profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Well, taking all of these references together, Whatever the precise details were of what these false teachers were teaching, it's safe to say that it included and it involved an obsession with so-called hidden truths supposedly found in Jewish myths and genealogies, rewrites and embellishments of certain sections of of Old Testament history. And I pointed out some examples last week of certain things like that that were floating around in those days. And it also involved religious and philosophical speculations, claiming to have special knowledge not found in the Bible. And then also we see here in verse 7, it involved the misuse and abuse of God's law. Paul says, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. Now I want to pause here for a few moments before we go any further. Think about this. One of the things that is driving this letter to Timothy is this terrible threat of apostasy in the church at Ephesus. In fact, when I was beginning to study this letter, and I'd read it many times over my life, it never really hit me like it has how, much, how this is really a major theme throughout this letter, how Paul keeps going back to this. Some were straying from the faith, turning away from the faith. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside. Verse 19. He speaks of certain ones who, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. 
He speaks in chapter 4, verse 1, of some who will depart from the faith, the body of truth that is to be believed. Chapter 5, verse 15, again, he speaks of some, he says, who have already turned aside after Satan. Chapter 6, verse 10, he speaks of some who have strayed from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And in the last verse of this epistle, he uses this language again, speaking of some who have strayed concerning the faith. This is an underlying driving concern of this letter. False teaching had become a tremendous threat to this church. And some had already fallen away. And this is amazing when you think about it. Think about it. This is a church that for almost three years had been instructed by the Apostle Paul himself. Acts chapter 19. And it's been estimated that it had only been four years since Paul had given his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. As one commentator has put it, commenting on this, the Ephesian church had drunk from the pure stream of apostolic teaching. There could be no better water than that. God's word from a writer of God's word. In today's terms, they did not drink merely from the tap, but from an apostolic fire hose. For three years, they had even had the grandest ecclesiastical letter of the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians, written personally to them. But within 48 months of Paul's farewell address to their elders, apostasy had come. It had already come to some. It was threatening others, and it was threatening the very life of of the church. Now, brothers and sisters, if that could happen to the church at Ephesus, don't ever think that it can't happen to us. It most certainly can. It only takes one generation. In fact, the repeated record of church history shows us that any given church can depart from the faith in even less than a generation. It can happen to this church. It can happen to any of us as individuals if we don't guard against it and keep our hearts close to Christ. And there are several lessons I want to underscore from this before we even go any further. The first one is this. This is why anyone who has any real concern for his or her soul must seek by God's grace to be thoroughly grounded in the Scriptures. My friend, you have the responsibility to discern between what's true and what is false. But now, how are you going to be able to do that if you don't study your Bible? Right? When someone comes to you claiming to teach Bible truth, you have the responsibility to discern whether he really is or not. Whether what he is saying is really true or just a half-truth or an all-out error. And that means that you must be a diligent student of the Bible. Listen, if your habit is to leave your Bible on the shelf during the week collecting dust, don't be surprised if you wake up in hell one day deceived by a false teacher. But not only do you need to be diligent in the study of the Scriptures, not only do you need to be involved in the life of the church where you're taught how to study the Scriptures and you're 
taught the word of God. But secondly, you need to be diligent in how you listen to God's word when it's preached. You know, careful listening to a sermon isn't always easy. But it's not supposed to be always easy. It often takes work. If a sermon is worth anything, it will require you to use your mind to follow the arguments that are being made and how they are connected to the text and drawn from the text. In other words, it will require you to think. My dear friend, you can't just throw your mind in the neutral and sit there daydreaming during the sermon. You have to fight against that. You can't stay up every Saturday night so late that you almost always sleep through half the message. No, properly hearing sermons, if it's biblical preaching, will cost the expenditure of mental energy. Reflecting upon what you hear, comparing it with what you already know in light of other passages, seeking to follow the train of thought, seeking to clearly grasp what you hear and to retain it. Now, of course, we pastors have a part in this. We should seek to make our sermons attention-getting, attention-keeping. We should seek to be organized and orderly in the presentation of what we deliver to you so that you can follow what we're saying and make it as easy to follow as we reasonably can and illustrate and so on. As much as the text and the truth expounded will allow. The preacher has a part in this. But we need to realize that when we gather in this place and the Word of God is opened up, it's not just the preacher who goes to work. You must go to work as well. We must imitate the Bereans. Remember them? Acts 17, 11, where we read that these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They're doing that under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We're going to check him out, make sure what he's saying is really true to the Scriptures. They just take it in. They, they search the Scriptures whether these things are so. You see, this also means, brothers and sisters, that you must demand. And if I die today and all the pastors get killed in a car wreck tomorrow, you must demand of those who minister the word of God to you in this place, that they don't just get up here and tell stories, and that they don't just make assertions they never prove from the text of Scripture in its context and support from the overall teaching of God's word and seek to get your conscience and your judgment to see it. And as I said a moment ago, that means you must be discerning. You personally have this responsibility. You can't pass that off on someone else. It will be no excuse to say, oh, but grandma, she really loved that preacher. She believed so-and-so as a true pastor and a faithful preacher. And if grandma believes it, that's good enough for me. I'll just trust her judgment. Or the denominational headquarters or RB Net believes it or pastor so-and-so believes it. And he seems to be a good man, so I'll just trust whatever he thinks. No, no, my dear friends, you're never to blindly trust in the discernment of another. You must exercise discernment yourself, and you yourself will be held accountable for what you believe. And if you embrace a lie, it is you who will suffer the consequences, and not only the person who encouraged you to believe it. Now, of course, others can help you to be discerning and help you from the Scriptures to develop Discernment. This is one of the reasons God has given pastors and teachers to the church and 
the reason we have Bible studies and classes and all of these things to help you to develop discernment, but the right and responsibility of exercising discernment belongs to every individual person. And this is a truth that is emphasized throughout the New Testament. We might might be tempted to think that only preachers are responsible here. I mean, this, this epistle is written to Timothy, a minister of the gospel. Yes, but it's written to Timothy that Timothy might help the people of God to recognize these false teachers and their errors. And it was to Christians, not just to pastors, but to individual people in the church at Colossae that Paul wrote in Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, again, it was to the members of the church that he writes, Test all things, hold fast what is good. John writes in 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Who's commanded to test the spirits, whether they are of God? Not some ecclesiastical elite, not some theological committee, not just the pastors, but this is the responsibility of every soul, every soul, my dear friends, brothers and sisters. And then let me mention one other thing. Thirdly, we also need to realize our great dependence upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit and our need, therefore, to seek his help in prayer. So many voices in our day claiming to be the voice of God, Voices coming over the airways, over the internet, podcasts, Twitter feeds, churches everywhere of all different kinds, people coming to your door, literature coming in the mail. How in the world could any of us ever hope to be able to discern between what is truth and what is error by our own wisdom and our own strength alone? No. In all of our interactions with God's Word and listening to God's Word preached, we must do so with prayerful reliance upon the Holy Spirit to help us. Praying with the psalmist in Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a great psalm to go to. It suggests many prayers for us in this very area. This is his prayer throughout that whole psalm. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may see Wonderful things out of your law. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Verse 34, give me understanding and I shall keep your law. And when you come down uh, near to the end of that psalm, we find him still praying. Much the same thing. Psalm 119, 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord, Give me understanding according to your word. My friend, do you ever pray like that? Do you ever pray like that? If not, you need to start praying like that. And if you do, if you're praying like that, sincerely, from the heart, you can trust that God by his spirit will help you to grow in your knowledge of the truth and in your love of the truth and to protect you from false teachers. But if you think you're okay, 
and I'll be just fine. And you neglect prayer for the Spirit's help, you're in great danger of being led astray. Well, I'm taking a big chunk of our time already. I know, and I guess you could call these further applications from what we considered last week. But in our time that we do have remaining, I want us to look more closely this morning at verses 6 to 7. Now, I touched on them last week, but there are some things here about false teachers that I I think uh, warrant a more careful consideration. Three things I want to look at the time remaining. First, the internal source of their departure from sound teaching. Second, their self-interested motivation. And third, what I'm calling their ignorant self-confidence. So let's consider, first of all, the internal source of their departure from sound teaching. Now, I'll remind you from last week that after Paul described the identity of these false teachers and the nature of their teaching, he also described the effects of their teaching there at the end of verse 4. He said they only promoted disputes or speculations, and it did not promote the administration of God or God's redemptive plan. And then in contrast to these false teachers and the negative effects of their teaching, Paul then underscored in verse 5 the aim and the result of a sound gospel ministry. Verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment or the, the purpose and the goal of the charge committed to you, Timothy, as a minister and preacher of the gospel is this, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Well, that brings us now to verse 6, where we pick up with the text. You notice Paul then says, verse 6, from which some, from which some. Now, some speaks of these false teachers and probably includes those who had followed their teaching. Which, from which, points back to a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith, in verse 5. From which, that is, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Now, notice what we're being told here. There are some who have turned aside to idle talk. He's talking about the teaching of these false teachers. But notice what has caused them to do this. From which having strayed. From which what have they strayed? Leading them then to turn aside to the idle talk of false teaching. They first strayed from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So here's what I want us to see. This turning aside after false teaching began when they first morally strayed in their hearts. Quoting from Hebert in his commentary on 1 Timothy. It was their failure in the moral realm which led to their perversion of the gospel. And this is very important, brothers and sisters. Listen to me closely. Men and women do not fall prey to false teaching only or primarily because of a head problem, but because of a heart problem. In 2 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul speaks of those, he says, who will be condemned, who did not believe the truth, he says. Why? But had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
Notice, not believing the truth is not merely an intellectual problem, it's a heart problem. They did not believe the truth because they loved their sin. Now look down here in this first chapter in 1 Timothy to verse 19 where we see this again. Here Paul clearly ties together here a defiled conscience with the danger of suffering shipwreck concerning the faith. Verse 19. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected. Now here the word translated which is in the singular and is specifically pointing back to a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience, which thing, specifically a good conscience, some having rejected, Concerning the faith, the body of truth that is to be believed, they have suffered shipwreck. And then he mentions, for example, in verse 22, men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And when did these men suffer shipwreck concerning the faith? Well, it all started when they rejected a good conscience. There was unconfessed sin that they cherished in their hearts and kept clinging to and refused to repent of. They had a controversy with God in some area of their lives, and they kept suppressing their, con- their conscience and stifling its admonitions and grieving the Holy Spirit, and the result was that their, their views of divine truth began to become dim and wavering until, as someone has put it, like an anchorless vessel, they drifted off into error and made shipwreck concerning the faith. And this happens all the time, sadly. When a young man comes to me, he says, you know, you know, pastor, I, don't, I just don't believe such and such anymore. You know what I'm tempted to say? Who is she? Who is she? Is there some relationship? God's word forbids, but you desire it? You refuse to give it up? or So you're ready to compromise? The truth. Your views have suddenly changed on certain things. Or it can be any number of things. This is why some young men set out for the Christian ministry with great enthusiasm. And they go to school and they learn Greek and Hebrew and they earn degrees in theology. But at some point they veer off course doctrinally and make shipwreck concerning the faith. Why? Because at some point they cast off a good conscience. And they fell prey to false teaching. Perhaps there came a time when that young man began to realize, if I embrace certain biblical truths and commit myself to ordering the church by them or commit myself to preaching the whole counsel of God, I'm going to have a hard time finding any church that will have me. Or I'm never going to have that mega church I always dreamed of and be a popular preacher. Instead, I'll I'll be limited to a small sphere. And the Holy Spirit began to deal with that man and to say, look, Are you willing to die to human applause? Are you willing to die to the carnal ambition, to the praise of men, and to buy the truth and sell it not wherever it takes you? And there begins to be a conflict of conscience. Will it be the praise of men or will it be the praise of God? And he stifled his conscience and began to come up with all kinds of plausible excuses and arguments for taking the easy way. And before too long he fell prey to false teachers and is swept away with damning errors 
Or it may be a secret, unmortified lust for money. Or for recognition in larger academic circles. Making a name for himself in scholarship realms and or may, like I said last week, you know, that's a, that's a danger in those realms. I think I said, did I quote uh, Ted Donnelly last week when he said that no one ever got a PhD by saying John Calvin got it right? Charles Spurgeon got it right? To come something new, right? Or maybe it's some vile, immoral habit or secret practice and so here's this man with all of this Greek and Hebrew and all of his Bible training deceived by false teachers and yet here's a simple housewife who never studied the original languages never went to seminary but she knows God and she knows her Bible and she knows the truth of God and she can explain and defend it against error with deep conviction why because she's walked before God with an ungrieved Holy Spirit, keeping her conscience washed in the blood of Christ by quick confession and ongoing repentance from sin. And she's willing, by God's grace, to follow the truth wherever it leads her, whatever the cost. If you're willing to do his will, Jesus said, you will know the truth, whether it is of God. But it begins with the heart, right? If you're willing to do his will. Consider these things. Consider these things. If you start playing games with your conscience and grieving the Holy Spirit by clinging to that darling sin of yours, whatever it is, you're setting yourself up to be led astray by false teaching. Your heart will grow increasingly hard. Your love will grow cold. Your delight in the truth will begin to fade. Preaching will become boring and old hat. And slowly, you'll begin to open yourself up to new ideas that allow you to justify yourself in your sin or your, your sinful desire, ambition, or whatever it may be. Novel perspectives and false doctrines. And unless you're brought to repentance, the end will not be good. The end will be destruction. So with respect to these false teachers, we have the internal source of their departure from sound doctrine. But then notice secondly, Paul points us to their self-interested motivation. Their self-interested motivation. Now with respect to these particular false teachers, what was the real driving motivation of their hearts? Verse seven, desiring to be teachers of the law. As Hendrickson puts it, they wanted to shine. They wanted to be known and looked up to. As teachers of the law, this word desiring indicates that this was their continuing and not yet entirely fulfilled wish and desire. And the present tense of the verb probably indicates the continuous nature of this desire. It was their pressing ambition and longing to be looked up to as teachers of the law. This is what was driving them, motivating them. One of the characteristics of a false teacher is that the real dominating motive of his heart and of his teaching and of his ministry is some secret form of self-interest. And it can be a number of things. It may be greed and covetousness. Paul indicates later that this also may have been one of the motives of these false teachers. For he describes them in 1 Timothy 6, 5 as men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness 
is a means of great gain. That sounds a whole lot like Christian broadcasting on TV. The stereotypical TV evangelist supposing that godliness is a means of material gain. Send me your money and you'll be healed of all your diseases. Join up with us. Follow us and God will shower you with material blessings. I think I told you, I can't remember sometimes whether about the the guy that people were sending in their bills to him and he lays hands on it and, and he says debt be gone and they're trusting that if they trust God enough and believe enough and they send him money that he's going to get rid of their debt just by a pluff of the hand you know it's going to be a miracle from heaven people fall for it thousands millions of people follow these false teachers around the globe the false gospel of health and wealth Peter, speaking of certain false teachers, in 2 Peter 2.3 says that by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. They simply use people and pursue success in their ministry as a way to make money and to acquire things. Some false teachers are secretly driven by a lust for power. For the praise of men, they love for people to admire their wisdom and praise their gifts and Uh, seek their counsel and hang on their every word and follow them as their leaders. It strokes their pride. And this is what are really driving them, like Diotrephes. Third John 9, they love to have the preeminence. Or the false teacher may be driven by a a self-righteous attempt to earn God's favor because he himself is a stranger in his own soul experientially to the gospel way of being right with God by grace through faith in Christ alone. And therefore, his involvement in teaching or preaching or in the ministry makes him feel religious. It makes him feel good about himself. It gives him a feeling of false security about his soul and a feeling of self-worth. But that's as far as it really goes. And no doubt there may be other motivations that drive a false teacher. But the bottom line is, like these in our text, The false teacher is driven by some dominating self-interest. They come to you in sheep's clothing, as Jesus says. You don't see it on the outside, the difference on the inside, but inwardly, they are ravening wolves. And Jesus also tells us that if we are prayerful, and if we are careful, and if we are watchful, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by the fallacious nature of what they teach or by the manner in which they live, the manner of their secret lives when they are exposed for what they really are. And it's not always what they say. Often it's the things that they seem to leave out in their teaching. So we have the internal source of their departure from the faith, their self-interested motivation, and then thirdly and finally, their self-confident ignorance. Look again at verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Now that word translated affirm is a strong word. It means to state with confidence to speak confidently. It's been translated, the things which they insist on so confidently. Now, there are two things here. 
First, they don't understand what they say, the things said. Yeah, they, they, fair, they fail to be careful. They, they, they fail to mind what they say, to consider well the unending flow of words that just keep coming out of their mouths. They just run off at the mouth carelessly, as we sometimes say it, without even knowing what they're saying. Secondly, they don't understand the matters about which they make such confident assertions. They don't understand those matters, but they confidently make assertions about them. Now, Paul is not criticizing confident speech. There is a proper boldness and confidence that is a mark of spirit-filled preaching, a certainty of faith in the truth of God's word and in the truth of the gospel that Paul commends in other places. For example, he uses this same word when writing to Titus in Titus 3.8, exhorting Titus to affirm certain things in his preaching. But the problem here with these false teachers is that they lack the necessary qualifications to be teachers in the church. They had no real understanding of the things they spoke about with such cock sureness. We might describe the problem in this way as I was thinking about it. They were arrogantly ignorant. You ever met someone who was arrogantly ignorant? That's the worst kind of ignorance. It's not good to be ignorant at all, but it's much worse to be arrogantly ignorant. To be ignorant, but to think you know it all. Perhaps you've heard of the uh, sophomore tendency. By the way, do you know where the word sophomore comes from? It comes from the Greek word sophos, which means wise, and the word moros, which means foolish. A sophomore is a wise fool. That's the idea. You come to college your freshman year, and you're a little bit nervous. You know, you know that you don't know anything, and you're, you're more tentative. You're more willing to listen. You're a bit nervous and tentative. Ah, but when you get a little knowledge and you become a sophomore, suddenly you think that you know everything when you really don't. That's the idea. Perhaps you've heard the word sophomoric. Look it up in the dictionary and it means conceited and overconfident of your knowledge, but poorly informed and immature. And there are preachers and teachers like that. Men who have read a few books here and there and suddenly they think they know everything. They're full of themselves, and they think everyone needs to listen to them. And everyone needs to read their posts on Facebook. They're experts now on all subjects, self-appointed teachers of others, correctors of everyone, everyone else. There are men in the ministry who have that kind of attitude and disposition, and you see it. It's an ugly thing. Or here's a young man. He's ready to be ordained as pastor, to presume to be a teacher in the church, and he gets angry if everyone else doesn't see it or if anyone points out his errors or tells him he's not ready yet. You may have heard the saying, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. The sophomoric attitude, the sophomores always know more or so they think than the seniors do and the grad students do. Well, this is a good description of these false teachers. Arrogant ignorance. And this is often one of the characteristics of false teachers. They have just enough knowledge to make them dangerous. But it's not a true and mature and spiritual knowledge that produces humility. 
in prayerful dependence upon God, and that's willing to get preparation and to be trained and to give yourself to the careful study of the word and to listen to others and to wait on the proper recognition of the church and its elders before presuming uh, to be a teacher of God's people. Brothers and sisters, let this remind us that one of the most important qualifications for any man to be a teacher of God's people is humility. Humility. Another qualification is spiritual maturity. And another is that the man has been taught. He's been carefully and thoroughly grounded in sound doctrine. Paul speaks to these things later in this epistle when he gives qualifications for the elders. In chapter 3, one of the qualifications he gives is not a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Another qualification he mentions in Titus 1.9 is holding fast the faithful word, listen, as he has been taught. This is a man who has been taught. He's been thoroughly trained in sound doctrine that he might be able to exhort and convict those who contradict. So brothers and sisters, let us remember this and be careful. Don't make a man an elder in the church just because he's a nice guy or because he's good at speaking. He can talk with ease. He's very articulate and he thinks he knows things. He sounds like he knows things. He talks with great confidence. Let them first be tested and examined. Make sure he's sufficiently mature in the faith. That he's truly grounded in the doctrines of the faith. And that he's a humble man who doesn't strut around causing disputes and divisions all the time by talking confidently about things he knows absolutely little or nothing about at all. Beware of arrogant ignorance. And those of you who have aspirations for the ministry and are in the seminary, beware of this in yourself. Don't try to take shortcuts into the Christian ministry. Remember, a genuine call to be a pastor includes a call to prepare and to give yourself to those preparations with all of your heart. Well, my time is gone. I'm actually trying to keep my sermons a little bit shorter, so my time is gone. And I want to I close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. That's a good way to close a sermon, isn't it? quote from Charles Spurgeon. He put it like this. All you that think you know and have a knowledge of the truth, may the Holy Spirit grant that we may not say a word which is not strictly verified by our experience. But I hope we can say we have had converse with the divine Father. We have not seen him at any time, nor have we beheld his shape. It has not been given to us like Moses to be put in the cleft of the rock and to see the back parts or the train of the invisible Jehovah. But yet, we have spoken to him. We have said to him, Abba, Father. We have saluted him in that title which came from our very heart, our Father, which art in heaven. We have had access to him in such a way that we cannot have been deceived. We have found him. And through the precious blood of Christ, we have come even to his feet. 
We have ordered our calls before him, and we have filled our mouth with arguments. Nor has the speaking been all on one side, for he has been pleased to shed abroad by his spirit his love in our hearts. While we have felt the spirit of adoption, he, on the other hand, has showed us the loving kindness of a tender father. We have felt, though no sound was ever heard, we have known, though no angelic messenger gave us witness, that his spirit did bear witness with our spirit that we are born of God. We were embraced of him, no more at a distant distance. We were brought nigh by the blood of Christ. That's the true knowledge of God, my friend. Do you know him in this way? Yes, you've read a few theology books, and that's good. Read more of them. You've read the Confession. You know a few things about Aquinas. A few things about, a little bit about Calvin. A little bit about Edwards. You can wax eloquence about the difference between ad extra and ad intra. Divine aseity, simplicity, impassibility, and all the rest. But have you come to this great God as nothing but a self-condemned, wretched, lost sinner? By faith alone in his Son, Jesus Christ. And have your sins been forgiven? And do you know that your sins have been forgiven? Do you know that you've been reconciled to God? That you've become a new creation in Christ Jesus? Well, may God grant that you will before this day is over. And let me say that being truly in Christ, that's the best protection. The best protection of all from being led astray by false teachers. Well, may God bless this word to our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. It's so rich. It's so relevant. It's so true. And we pray for us as a congregation that you would protect us and preserve us. May it never be said of us that we have gone astray from the faith. Keep us, Lord. Keep us in our hearts from going after the things of this world or living with a bloodied conscience, deviating in order to justify our own sin. Father, please help us, preserve us, keep us, keep us in your word, keep us devoted to your truth that we might glorify you. We pray that that would be the case for us in this generation and even for generations to come here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.